Hey, Kev, let's let's follow this trail over here. This looks like there might be something waiting down there. All right. Hey, wait a minute. Do you hear that? Yeah, I thought it was just me. What the heck is that? I don't know what that is. Whoa, do you smell that, too? That's unbelievable. Hey, look. What the? Hey, look, those, those branches are moving over there. What the heck is that? Holy cow, is that what I think it is? Look at that thing. It, oh my god. It's a freaking Sasquatch. Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I am your host, W.J. Sheehan. Hello, everybody, and thank you once again for joining my brother and I for what is going to be a fantastic show. I am your host, W.J. Sheehan, author of the series of books, Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters, Volumes 1 through 9, available at Amazon in paperback and ebook. And if you're an audiophile, like to do a little bike riding with the earphone in your ear, you can pick up Volumes 1 through 8 at Audible, iTunes, and Amazon as well. So do partake of some of these books and show some support for what it is we do here. And now, may I ask my brother to enter into the fray. Kevin, how are you? I'm doing great, Bill, but more importantly, how are you doing after Hurricane Henri stopped by? (laughs) Yeah, Henri, man, the Frenchman. Uh, (laughs) Well, you know, we bit the bullet here today. Uh, I'm sure there were a lot of people praying uh, for this to disperse or move and uh that's exactly what happened it moved its trajectory off to the northeast and it started to like fragment that was coming undone you know you know how they measure the strength and intensity of a hurricane by the tightness of the uh yeah yeah. it looked like it looked like it was falling apart even when it was out over the ocean south of long island yeah, you know when I was watching on the Weather Channel, and they said that the it hit the cooler water, like the ocean was much cooler off of Long Island, and then it was interacting with the jet stream and this big low pressure system that was west of Long Island as well. So I, I guess it hit Rhode Island pretty hard, or it's still hitting Rhode Island pretty hard. But you guys were spared. Yeah, well, you know, uh, our biggest thing here was. Uh, of course, the winds. Winds are always a problem, especially with the trees full of foliage. Right. Uh, and we've been getting a lot of rain here for months. I mean, we we have two or three rainy days a week over here. So, of course, they're worried about the trees being uprooted with the soil being soft and moist and everything. Right. Uh, but even at Montauk Point, there were only gusts to 60 miles an hour, and over by me, uh, I don't think I had a 20-mile-an-hour wind over here. So, Wow. Yeah, so it was really, uh, thank God, everything worked out well, you know, and uh, we had a, 
I heard numbers of around 1,500 people out of power. Yeah. But when you consider there's a couple of million people on the island, 1,500, you know, uh, uh, most of that. That could be a regular yeah, thunderstorm, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. You know, a couple and of limbs probably, down. And it's probably... It's all because you put out that nice glass of burgundy and a little fromage for Henri so that he would not be upset. <laughs> Let me tell you something. I got two barrels waiting for Henri if I ever meet him. <laughs> <laughs> two barrels of vino? No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Two barrels of lead. Oh. <laughs> well, I'm glad you made it through okay. I didn't think we'd be recording today because I thought for sure you would be without power or without internet. So that's fantastic. That yeah, no, it's, it's good stuff. Good stuff. And, uh, you know, the and main we were saying around- down, yeah, we were saying down here, it was so strange. It's been a long time where a hurricane has hit the East Coast of the U.S., me being in North Carolina, and, and, the, its first landfall was north of North Carolina. So, like, I don't even have to worry about this thing. Where, you know, even when they hit Florida, Louisiana, Alabama, then we got to think about, okay, what's it going to do to us after it passes over the land if it's not one of them that just slams into North or South Carolina? Yeah, so it's yeah, kind of strange. You, you know how the shore is over here on Long Island. We've got some communities where if you get a rising tide, a full moon, uh, wind pressure, if the circulation of the storm uh, is pumping water into the Long Island Sound, that can be a problem for, like, you know, Port Jefferson. I was going to say Port uh, Jefferson for sure. That place floods yeah. when uh, when the tide's just high without a storm, yeah. like with a yeah, super so tide. Even you remember riding down into Mount Sinai on a full moon, yeah, uh, the yeah. harbor would come up onto Harbor Road, and you couldn't get through there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, we were very uh, fortunate, you know, that uh, things worked out the way they did, you know. Well, we're glad. Super. <laughs> now, my brother, what do you say we dig into a little cryptids in the news and other oddities? Yeah, today, uh, today we're going to talk about the hairy man. And we're going to do one of the classic encounters of all time, which occurred in October of 1955, and it's known as the William Rowe Encounter. Oh, okay. Do you remember this one? Yeah, I have uh, I have a recollection of the encounter, yeah. but, you know, I like to go over these things. You know, uh, oh, redundancy yeah. is great, you know? Well, we haven't covered it. I haven't done it as one, and... Uh, I uh, I can't believe I haven't done this one yet because it's fantastic. Uh huh. Well, so let's William have Rowe, it. Yeah, yeah. He was uh, an avid outdoorsman, and uh, he was a highway worker at the time. And they were working on the roads, working on the highways in British Columbia, uh-huh. up uh, near Alberta, British Columbia, in a little town called Teta Jean Cash. Uh-huh. Uh, that's the best my French is, so sorry, Henri. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he's he's up there in Teta John Cash, and he gets a day off, so he decides that he's going to uh, go for a hike and uh, go up and hike uh, this mountain called Micah Mountain, which is really close by there that has an old abandoned mine. 
and mm-hmm. Roe has an encounter. And mm-hmm. he actually documents the encounter with a sworn affidavit in front of some of the uh, city officials back then. Wow, interesting, huh? So it's pretty cool. I'm, so I'm going to read the uh, affidavit. And the affidavit okay. I picked up, uh, it's a lot of different places on the web, but I picked it up from our friends at uh, Texas Cryptid Hunter. So thanks, folks. Yep, thank you. Yeah, so he says, so he starts out, he says, Ever since I was a small boy back in the forest of Michigan, I've studied the lives and habits of wild animals. Later, when I supported my family in northern Alberta by hunting and trapping, I spent many hours just observing the wild things. They fascinated me. But the most incredible experience I ever had was with a wild creature that occurred near a little town called Tedajan Cache in British Columbia, about 80 miles west of Jasper, Alberta. Hmm. I'd been working on the highway near Tedajan Cache for about two years. In October 1955, I decided to climb five miles up Micah Mountain to an old deserted mine just for something to do. I came in sight of the mine about three o'clock in the afternoon after an easy climb. I'd just come out of a patch of low brush into a clearing when I saw what I thought was a grizzly bear in the bush on the other side of me. I had shot a grizzly bear near that spot a year before. This one was only about 75 yards away, but I didn't want to shoot it for I had no way of getting it out of there. So I sat on a small rock and watched with my rifle in my hands. Hmm. I, yeah, I could see part of the animal's head and the top of one shoulder. A moment later, it raised up and stepped into the opening. Then I saw it was not a bear. There you go. There you go. And this, to the best of my recollection, is what the creature looked like and how it acted as it came across the clearing directly toward me. My first impression was a huge man, about six feet tall, almost three feet wide, and probably weighing somewhere near 300 pounds. Mm. It was covered from head to foot with dark brown silver-tipped hair. But as it came closer, I saw that it had breasts and it was a female. And yet its torso was not curved like a female's. Its broad frame was straight from shoulder to hip. Its Mm -hmm. arms were much thicker than a man's arms and longer, reaching almost to its knees. Its feet were broader and broader proportionately than a man's about five inches wide at the front and tapering to a much thinner portion at the heels. When it walked, it placed the heel of its foot down first, and I could see the gray-brown skin or hide on the soles of its feet. It came to the edge of the bush where I, where that I was hiding in within 20 feet of me and squatted down on its haunches. Reaching out its hands, it pulled the branches of bushes toward it and stripped the leaves with its teeth, its lips curling flexibly around the leaves as it ate. I was close enough to see that its teeth were white and even. The head was higher at the back than in the front. The nose was broad and flat, 
the lips and chin protruded farther than its nose, but the hair that covered it, leaving barely leaving bare only the parts of its face around the mouth, nose, and ears, made it resemble an animal as much as a human. None of its hair, even on the back of its head, was longer than an inch, and that on its face was much shorter. Its ears were shaped like a human's ears, but its eyes were small and black like a bear's, and its neck was also its neck was also unhuman, thicker oh. and shorter than any man's I'd ever seen. As I watched the creature, I wondered if some movie company was making a film at this place, and that was what that is what I saw, an actor made up to look partly human and partly animal. But as I observed it more, I decided it would be impossible to fake such a specimen. There you go. Anyway, yep. Anyway, I learned later there was no such company near that area, nor, in fact, did anyone live up on Micah Mountain, according to the people who lived in Tedajan Cache. Finally, the wild thing must have got my scent, for it looked directly at me through an opening in the brush. A look of amazement crossed its face. It looked so comical at the moment, I had to grin. Still in a crouched position, it backed up three or four short steps, then straightened up to its full height and started to walk rapidly back the way it had come. For a moment, it watched me over its shoulder as it went, not exactly afraid, but as though it wanted no contact with anything strange. The thought came to me that if I shot it, I would possibly have a specimen of great interest to scientists the world over. I had heard stories of the Sasquatch, the giant hairy men that live in the legends of British Columbia Indians, and also many claim are still in fact alive today. Maybe this was a Sasquatch, I told myself. Hmm. I leveled my rifle. The creature was still walking rapidly away. Again, turning its head in my direction, I lowered the rifle. Although I have called the creature it, I felt now that it was a human being, and I knew I would never forgive myself if I killed it. Just as it came to the other patch of brush, it threw its head back and made a peculiar noise that seemed to be half laugh and half language, and which I can only describe as a kind of whinny. Then it walked from the small brush into the stand of lodgepole pine. I stepped out into the opening and looked across a small ridge just beyond the pine to see if I could see it again. It came out on a ridge a couple of hundred yards away from me, tipped its head back again, and again emitted the only sound I had heard it make. But what this half-laugh, half-language was meant to convey, I do not know. It disappeared then, and I never saw it again. I found one place where it had slept for a couple of nights under a tree. Now the nights were cool up on the mountain, at this time of year especially, and yet it had not used a fire. I found no sign that it possessed even the simplest of tools, nor a single companion while in this place. Whether this was a Sasquatch, I do not know. I will, it will always remain a mystery to me unless another one is found. I hereby declare the above statement to be in every part true to the best of my powers of observation and recollection. Signed, William Rowe. 
That is one fantastic Isn't statement. That cool? 1955. Yeah, he actually made the statement in early. So he saw it in October of 1955, and then he did this statement in early 1957. So about a year and a few months later. Yeah, and yeah. what a statement if you think about it, Kev. First oh, it's of fantastic. all, this guy was a he was feeding his family, trapping and hunting in Alberta before he came over there. Yep. Then he takes a five mile hike by himself up this Micah Mountain to this uh mine shaft or whatever he, he knew was up there to have a yeah, abandoned abandoned mine. Uh-huh. Yep. And you know, it's so jam-packed with data before the term uh, Bigfoot was coined. He speaks about having heard of the, the legends of the Sasquatch from the Indians. Of course, <coughs> excuse me, up to that point in time, he hadn't seen one. Uh, again, he reiterates what we've heard so many times the dark colored fur tipped in like gray. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the females, we were just discussing this a couple of podcasts ago, how the females, like the Patty film, have this very cylindrical type of body. Uh, they're definitely not as tall as the male. He said it was about six foot tall and 300 pounds. Yeah. And, uh, so many details, the head sloping forward, uh, even looking teeth. Yeah, uh, no, ne- no neck, you know. Right. A, a yeah. neck that was not like a human. Right. Uh, I mean, just so many things he was spot on with his level of detail. And isn't that just like a hunter or a trained observer? You know, if you're a trapper... You have to be looking at so many things out in the woods, including what you're building to catch your prey, to know the details. What are they eating here? Who's moving in and out of here and where? Uh, Where am I going to set my trap? You know, these people have a wealth of knowledge that can only be taught in the bush or person to person from those who have experience in that which you're about to partake of, you know? Yep. You know, and this is, uh, you know, he talks about himself being a, a, an observer of of wild animals, you know, as well yeah. as being, of course, a, a fantastic hunter and trapper. Um, he says he's just fascinated observing them as well. And this is, Bill, this is in the middle of nowhere, too. So oh, yeah. it's, you know, a long way west of Edmonton, almost to the border of British Columbia, and mm-hmm. the northwest edge of Jasper National Park of Canada, which is, you know, yeah. Yeah. middle of nowhere, really. Yeah. Yeah. I had a couple of guys, we'll get to that eventually, that had quite an encounter in Jasper. Okay. Uh, I don't know when we'll get around to that. I do things very randomly, and uh, eventually we'll hit on that. And that was a mind-blowing yeah. uh, encounter. Uh, but this guy... I'm fascinated by the story because he felt so strongly about it that he he wanted to have witnesses hear it and sign off on it as being truthful uh, just to get it on the record, you know. 
Exactly. That, and it's in 1957. It's not like he's going for a, a record number of YouTube hits or something like that, you know. Yeah, he's going for nothing. I mean, going for nothing. Ma- yeah. Yeah. How many people actually knew about it, I wonder, after he had made this statement? Yeah. Maybe some local uh, rag newspaper at the time that had, you know, 500 copies or something. Who who knows? I mean, it wasn't a national phenom. Yep. Wow, that is incredible. No doubt about it. So super cool again up in uh, on the edge of British Columbia on the west side of Alberta. Uh, so uh, you know, definitely hotbed, hotbed area of Sasquatch. Kev, what was his name again? It is, uh, now you're catching me off guard, I got it, William Rowe. William Rowe. Interesting, yeah. man. Really yeah. interesting. And I'll tell you what, uh, you don't hear about that story very often. No, I don't. Yeah. And it's remarkable that uh, such things go, like, unnoticed, Uh uh, I don't know quite how to put my finger on that, but this is another reason why I like redundancy with the podcast. I do not mind talking about things a dozen times over the course of uh, a year or two or three or four because they need to be told again and again, not only to remind ourselves, but to remind all the newcomers uh, people who don't know a whole heck of a lot about what it is we're talking about and uh, kind of re-up the the story, the legends, the facts, the fiction, you know, and kind of bring it out, uh, bring it up again and again and again, you know, very interesting. Yeah, super cool, super cool. I, I can't believe I didn't do this one before. When I came across it, I was like, oh, I remember hearing about this. And uh, yeah. So it's good. It's a good one. Yeah, hang on to that. You know, we'll do that again down the road a piece. You know. Yep. Uh, even the uh, the Patty film. You know, I could talk about the Patty film a couple of times a year easily. You know, because it's so enthralling. Uh, yeah. So, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, you know, so debatable. You know, there's so many people that fall on different sides of the fence. Oh, yeah. Uh, It's controversial, for sure. Definitely. Thanks. That's the word I was looking for. Well, I got something uh, pretty interesting here, and uh, I'm sure there's people out there that would find this to be controversial, but I don't. Uh, (laughs) This sighting was brought to my attention by a guy named Danny Reeves, uh, who was surprised by something rather unusual while hunting in November of 1987. This is what Danny and his partner saw. It was November 30th, 1987, when my hunting buddy Tom and I had launched my duck boat in the Allegheny River in hopes of tagging a few late-season ducks that hadn't headed south of the Mason-Dixon line just yet. The water temperature was in the upper 30s, and tagging along with us was my lab. She had been retrieving field birds. By the way, his lab's name was Cinnamon. She had been retrieving field birds and ducks for me since she was six months old and was quite adept at doing so. 
Having launched a boat, we began to head about three miles downriver to a point where white water could be seen rippling over the shallow river bottom. We couldn't continue past here without lifting the motor, and if you did that, you'd have no way to get back upstream. Just before this area was a spot on the bank covered in cattails and reeds. It had always been a great place for us to build a makeshift blind to conceal ourselves for the hunt. Having reached this destination, we slid the boat up onto the shore, covered it over with our camo tarp, and concealed it from the birds overhead. We set about two dozen decoys, after which Tom and I crouched in the cattails, standing in our insulated waders while Cinnamon sat on the bank, keeping her paws out of the frigid water. Believe it or not, the labs can handle quite a bit more than you and I may think, but nevertheless, I didn't want her to be standing in the water idle for a longer than necessary period of time. We had seen some mallards and bluebills go by, but nothing within range of taking a shot. We had been in wait for about a half an hour when Cinnamon began to growl, which was very uncharacteristic behavior for her. She always kept quiet, very still, while waiting for my command to retrieve. She was unrelenting, however, with her growl eventually turning into a whine and then finally a bark. Now, there's no way we're going to attract and shoot ducks with a barking dog by our side. So Ed and I backed out of the cattails to try and calm her down. As we were petting and talking to her, she kept growling and puffing her jowls up, staring across the river at the bank on the other side. As I was talking to her and petting her, I asked Ed, do you see anything over there? He said to me, I don't see a damn thing. What on earth is she so upset about? I've never seen her behave like this. About 20 minutes had passed. She seemed to have calmed down enough that Ed and I re-entered the cattails to once again begin our hunt. About 15 minutes later, a couple of mallards broke off from their flight to have a look-see at our decoys, and the shots rang out. Ed and I virtually fired at the same time at three different birds, hitting two of the three. Before I had given the command for Cinnamon to fetch, across the bank, rising up out of the cattails, appeared a gigantic hairy monster, which stood easily three feet over the six-foot cattails. This thing that was standing on two legs began to move quickly out of the cattails and towards the woods. The shots ringing out had obviously shaken it out of hiding, causing it to expose itself and move towards the trees. Cinnamon started to bark and howl like a wolf, and the creature turned as she did so, continuing to walk away from us. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, we both knew what she was upset about, 
But how she knew it was there while we didn't is anyone's guess. I had scoured that bank with my eyes and saw absolutely nothing. And yet Cinnamon was aware of the monster's presence. We also knew that we were looking at a Bigfoot, but we couldn't believe our eyes. It was a tremendously large animal, being some five to six feet wide at the shoulders and maybe nine feet tall or better. Only God knows what it was doing in the weeds on the other bank. The area it was in is dry, so perhaps it was bedding down in there and Cinnamon had smelled it. That's the only explanation we could think of given the circumstances we found ourselves in. By the time we were done watching it as it walked away, our ducks had floated downriver and we decided to call it quits for the day. To this very day, Ed and I have not stopped talking about that encounter on the Allegheny while duck hunting. <laughs> now, I had asked Henry if there were any other details that came to mind about the creature other than those he had already stated, and this is what he had to say. The creature was so large and darkly colored that it had to have been lying down asleep. I say this because where and when it stood... Had it been crouching down or moving about, we would have easily seen its color at the very least, amidst the tan and dead cattails. When it first stood, it didn't so much as look at us. It was walking away at a very fast pace. It wasn't until Cinnamon began to bark violently that it turned its head to the right, looking over its shoulder for one brief moment in our direction. When it turned, the entire upper body moved with the head, the head being seemingly unable to do so by itself. There was so much muscle visible throughout its entire back, particularly behind the head, that its head was virtually concealed from view from the rear. The face was not covered in fur or hair, and we could see that the eye sockets were deeply recessed and dark, with the eyes being black. When I say it was walking quickly, it appeared to be doing so rather leisurely, but in human terms, it was covering a lot of ground quickly, which to me was indicative of some seriously long strides being taken. I will tell you flat out, without any hesitation or trepidation, that this thing is a monster and not a man. If it had showed up behind us, I would have emptied my gun at it, and if it didn't go down, I would be taking my chances in the river. That's the type of monstrosity that I am talking about. I'm not even sure that both of our shotguns could have stopped it from killing us had it come to that. What do you think of that, Kev? Oh, that's something else. And yeah, I wouldn't bet on both of those shotguns stopping some nine-foot-tall Bigfoot while you got duck shot in there. Yeah, I mean, it's like yeah. uh, shooting at a bear, right? Yeah. 
How many times have we said that? You might pump a couple of rounds that it still might kill you before it rolls over and dies. Absolutely. Jeez. Yeah. And the Labrador senses it, just like in my house. Yeah. <laughs> but my, my, my Labrador Martha <laughs> would have been sensing the cinnamon roll rather than their <laughs> Labrador cinnamon sensing the Bigfoot. Yeah, she'd be smelling the ripe tomatoes in the garden. Yeah, she's like, I can smell a tomato from across the river. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting, though, how the way, the how and the why and the when uh, that people encounter these things. Yeah, great. uh, You know, again, common description, too, with the... Uh, well, I mean, this one's a really big one, right, at nine feet tall or so. But the uh, muscular nature, the deep-set eyes, the black eyes, the, uh, mm-hmm. you know, lack of a neck because it's so muscular, pretty pretty interesting. Yeah, and I found it interesting just thinking back, you know, uh, uh, Expedition Bigfoot, they were by that creek uh, in Kentucky, and uh, they had found a print near the cattails. And uh, Dr. Maria Mayor, Maria Mayor, whatever her name was, uh, commented uh, on uh, the cattails in some way, how they were parted and uh, a creature having come down by the water, you know. Uh, there's so much redundancy with the the need for these creatures, like any creature, to have water. Uh, who knows? Maybe they sneak up on ducks or geese nesting in the cattails on the ground and grab eggs or snatch them out of their nests while they're sleeping for a meal, you know? It's, it's, you know, if you're a, if you're a true scavenger, uh, anything is fair game. Right, I mean, anything you could get to eat, eggs, food. Uh, going back to the fellow we were just talking about, he said that thing was grabbing the branches, probably berry bushes. Yeah, well, and just, just eating of, the leaves too, eating some vegetation. Yeah, yeah, stripping them, stripping them off with the teeth. Just incredible, man. I mean, what yeah. a fascinating, oh, wild. Yeah, it's a fascinating adventure. Wild uh, stuff. Talking about the Bigfoot monster. <laughs> He's right, though. You see, the terminology uses, this thing is not a man. It's a freaking monster. You know, and maybe the term monster is not apropos, but if it's not a man, it's an animal, and a monstrous animal at that, you know? Hey, uh, you know, when I see a grizzly, I'm like, that thing is a monster. You know, some of those big grizzlies. Yeah, there's no doubt They're about monsters. it. You don't think of them like an animal. You think that thing's a freaking monster. Yeah. You rip your arms off. <laughs> you know, you think about some of the uh, creatures that have roamed the earth before we were here. And one that I brought up before was the short-faced bear. Yeah. I mean, they say that short-faced bear was like, you know, I don't know, 14 feet tall and a ton, you know, and uh, big yeah. teeth and claws. And I mean, my God, you know, can you imagine facing off on that thing? Or, or if you were living in a cave, that thing coming after you for food? 
Yeah, he used to pal around with the saber-toothed tiger. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, you know. Yeah. And you're Crazy. there with a pointy stick trying to fend him off. <laughs> Man, alive. No, thank you. Wow. You know, I told you the story. I was listening to this fella being interviewed. Uh, uh, he was quite the scientific guy, and uh, he was talking how about years ago when they found skulls of old uh, humans, uh, they'd find breaks in the skull. And uh, by many people, it was always thought to be uh, from a strike from a, a hatchet or a club or murder or murder or warfare where somebody got smashed in the head with a rock or something. Right. But his opinion was, after the fact, that it was from the saber-toothed tiger attacking them as prey and puncturing their skulls with its fangs. Uh, certainly could be. Think about that for a minute, huh? Hmm. Woo! I don't know, man. People like to mess around with the Bigfoot. I don't think they're to be trifled with at all. No, especially when they're nine feet tall. Wow, man. Jeez, you know. Mm. It's just hard to believe. So that's it, Kevin. Pretty, a couple a of pretty account. out. Allegheny yeah, pretty, River. So that's like uh, Pennsylvania or something like that? Uh, well, you know, we th- yeah, we think about Allegheny and Pennsylvania, but I didn't put in here what state he was in. Okay. Uh, but def- definitely northern in that uh, it was November and he was hoping to catch some of these ducks before they flew south. Yeah. So uh, definitely in northern hemisphere. I think the Allegheny runs through a few states. Yeah, I'll have to look it up. I'll have to look yeah. it up. But yeah, yeah, very cool. Yep. So good stuff. It. Good stuff. Well, we got some good listener mail, Bill, as well. All right. And our first letter comes in from Jimmy in Las Vegas. Uh-huh. Yeah. And Jimmy writes, hello, WJ and KJ. First off, thank you so much for your podcast. I absolutely love it. It helps me fall asleep. I'm not sure that's a good thing, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> and he writes, and then I listen to it the next night so I can hear what I missed. Hopefully you don't fall asleep two nights in a row on the same one. So. <laughs> That way I get to listen to both of you twice a week instead of just once. I've listened to every podcast to date, and I have two books as well. So thank you so much, Jimmy. Excellent. And Jimmy wanted to let us know that the legendary Bigfoot researcher and dear friend of his, Mr. Peter Burns, turns 96 uh, today, actually, on Sunday, August 22nd, when we're recording this podcast. Mm Mm-hmm. And he says, although I live in Vegas, my original home is Oregon, on the Oregon coast. And my family house is just a stone's throw from Peter and his wife up there. And Bill, I love it when you pronounce Oregon the way you do. It makes me (laughs) laugh because I know how much it cheeses off any elitists up there in Oregon. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha. He writes, and he says, I digress, just figured I'd pass on Peter's birthday to you, as I know the research community is a small one, and you'd appreciate knowing. Yes, so happy birthday, Peter. Happy 96. 
And then he says, thanks again for your awesome entertainment. Hope that you keep globetrotting, Kev. And Bill, I hope that you keep carrying more gun than you think you're going to need. <laughs> now, that is excellent. It's a good one. Short to the point. Well said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, Kev, I, I went back with this fella, and I asked him... Uh, uh, how I could contact Peter. And uh, I got an email and I reached out to him. So I'm waiting to hear back from him. Cool. Yeah, I'd like to hear what the fella has to share. And uh, through many years of research and stories, and it's just always good, you know, mm. to uh, to kick it around, you know? No doubt. No doubt about it. That is fantastic. <laughs> Very cool. All right, our next letter comes in from Rob in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. And he writes, Hi, guys. I listen to you guys every week. I wrote in before, and I talked to Bill on the phone shortly afterwards. You're always asking for ideas on stories for you guys to cover. Have you ever heard of the Lake Worth monster? This is near Fort Worth, Texas, and it's not about a lake monster in the tradition of Nessie or Champ. The Lake Worth monster was a white Bigfoot-like monster that terrorized the Fort Worth area for a while. Some descriptions described it as having a goat-like head. Uh -oh. It even threw a truck tire at some folks in a gravel pit area. The stories say the tire flew over 100 feet. There's even an alleged picture of the beast. I very much enjoy your podcast. I also devour everything I can find about cryptids, especially Bigfoot. And then he goes on to say, have you heard of the Gugwee? Which I haven't heard of, Bill. Have you heard of the Gugwee? How, do you, how does he spell it? G-U-G-W-E. No, and I have he no says idea. The Gugwee is a type of Bigfoot. The Choctaw... Indians have tales about this nasty critter. It's sometimes called the bear man because it is the only giant ape man with a snout. Think baboon-like instead of gorilla, and you get the picture. It reportedly only eats meat and will kill humans. Keep up the great work and always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Well, we got we got two investigations we got to launch there, Kevin. Yeah, we got some good ones. Thank you yeah, for that, the ideas. That Gugwe yeah. sounds a lot like what people are describing as a dog man today. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, you talk about a big beast with a snout and teeth. Only eats meat and might kill humans. Yeah. Yeah. Carnivorous. Well, that other one, the Lake Worth monster, too, with the goat-like head, that sounds a little uh, yeah. evil as well. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I know how you feel about goats, Bill. Yeah, well, with good reason. <laughs> and the ability, the superhuman ability to throw a truck tire. Oh, yeah. Now, I would imagine when this guy says a truck tire, we're talking about, you know, 18-wheeler. Uh, Hey, Bill, and even you, if you throw my pickup truck tire, that's yeah. pretty good. Yeah, 100 feet, you're doing something. That's pretty clear, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. 
Well, it doesn't surprise me, though. We heard about the strength of the uh, uh, rock apes and yep. and the guy the guys in Vietnam with these creatures throwing boulders they thought were 100 or 200 pounds. How is that even possible? No idea. Yeah, 100-pound rock. Cannot imagine. It. Cannot imagine. Look, look what a man, a well-trained man... Uh, has to go through to hurl a shot put. Yeah. You know, the musculature and the spinning and the practice and the momentum, you know, to get the thing launched, you know. What do they throw those things? How far do they go? Oh, I don't I watched it in the Olympics. I can't remember how far they were throwing them. I would say 150 feet or something crazy. But those yeah, guys, well, I, I mean, they look like Bigfoot too, some of them, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. 6'5", all muscle, no <laughs> neck, you know. And, they might and even really, do that like, they might even do that Winnie-like howl after they throw it well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I was watching a few of uh, the world's strongest men having a little competition once. It was off the record. And uh, Eddie Hall won. I don't know if you know him. He's from Great Britain. And uh, they were doing a hammer throw, like this uh, Viking hammer throw where you grab this. And uh, Eddie Hall won. I forget what this thing weighed, but I'm saying he didn't throw it all that far. But the other guys, one of the other guys shorted him by like 50 feet. Uh, And, uh, you know, and these are some of the world's strongest people doing this stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's incredible, man. Great, great email. Yeah, and our last uh, letter comes in. So we're getting a lot of good ideas in the letters this week, which is awesome. You know, they have a common theme of carrying more gun than you think you're going to need and giving Mm -hmm. us good ideas. So this one comes in from Mike, and uh, he says, I just listened to your latest podcast of the Dover Demon, which happened back in 1977. And afterwards, on YouTube, I found Bob Gimlin had just dropped a new video titled The Enfield Monster, which happened in 1973. The cases seem very similar to one another. Perhaps you two should check out his video and see what you think. As always, it was a great show, and thanks for your hard work and effort you both put in so all of us uh, can enjoy it out here in the crypto world. Mike. So, Mike, thank you. That's a good one. I I remember reading about the Enfield Monster, but I can't recall the details, so I'm definitely going to put that on the list as well. Hmm. Yeah, the only thing Enfield I know is a rifle. (laughs) That's a different (laughs) monster. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Now, you see, this is one of the fantastic things about the podcast is that the audience feels so comfortable reaching out to us uh, with uh, a variety of different things that they have knowledge of. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and this is the greatest thing of, like, this interactive uh, uh, entity that we've created here, Bigfoot Terror in the Woods, that uh, people are in their comfort zone interacting with us, and we're encouraging all of you to do so. Oh, and I love to hear from you, like especially when you see or read about some interesting cryptid or other oddity. 
man, send it over. It's cool. That's how I learn about half of the things I report on. Absolutely. And it's yeah. all in the sharing, right, Kev? Absolutely. 100%. Remember, remember folks, sharing is caring. Especially when you're sharing a monster. Yes. <laughs> please, please open the door. We just want to come in and use the men's room. That's all. Don't worry about our blank eyes. No need to tell anyone. We just need to use your phone. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I love those children. Yeah, that is some creepy stuff, man. <laughs> well, I guess that's it for today, Kev, huh? Yeah, that's it. So, folks, uh, thank you for the great reviews, the five-star reviews. If you haven't left us one lately, please leave us one. They are virtually the only means we have of attracting new people to the podcast. And thank you. Yeah, folks. And remember, go to the website, or go to Amazon, uh, go to Audible, pick up one or two of my books, and... Uh, Help me out over here. And by the way, if you should run into the Gugwee, you'll be wishing, my friend, that you always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight. <laughs>